Lord, we just ask you to bless this this evening. Help us as we look at this section of the scripture and help us to see what you would have us to do, see. We thank you for each person that's here and anybody that might be on their way. And we ask your leading and guiding of your Holy Spirit in your son's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent for ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And, that, and the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. So we'll stop there. It's the end of the paragraph. So we, we see here... John the Baptist being, being introduced in, in uh, other books we will see in Luke we find out his whole heritage you know being, being born of Elizabeth and Zacharias he's a cousin of Jesus already and we see him being introduced and Matthew is just going to introduce him so that he can bring in the prophecy and remember Matthew brings in a lot of prophecies in here, and this is the only reason he's bringing Matthew in. It's not a whole lot uh, bringing in John the Baptist because he's not trying to set up where he came from. And we see this all, all the time in stories. Many times you don't have the lineage of somebody. They, they just come in, impact somebody's life, and drop out of the story. And that's how Matthew is treating John the Baptist. He's not, not looking at the fact that it, the miraculous birth of John the Baptist, he's not trying to put his lineage and who he is and everything, he just drops him into the story. Do we know how long he's been in the wilderness at this point? It never tells us how long he's been preaching. Uh, he's only a few months older than Jesus, and to really be a teacher in, in Israel, you had to be 30 years old to be considered a teacher, so he probably has not been there long. Long enough to draw attention of the scribes and Pharisees, we'll see but probably not a real long time just because of the age issue. And that's, project, that's you know, presumption because he could have started 20 years old. But most accepted him as a teacher? Yeah, he's been accepted by the people. Okay. He's being accepted by the people. And it says that his message was a real simple one. Repent you for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, for the Jews, this idea of repentance was not a real strong teaching. It was taught every once in a while. We see it very, we see it all through the Old Testament. But their general message was obey the law and offer your sacrifices. There wasn't a whole lot of the idea of repent to them. So John's message is a little bit off the normal. Most of the rabbis would just encourage you to you know, do your do your you know do your uh, obedience to the law and offer your sacrifices and the sacrifices covered covered you and there wasn't so much of the idea of repentance now David talked about repentance and you know Jonah talked I mean we're not saying it wasn't <laughs> covered in the Old Testament but in general it was not the everyday message for the Jewish world and we see this also in the Christian world for those of us who are really strong in God we're reading our Bible we understand that repentance is an absolute need. We need to repent of our sins. And repent means to turn away from, to be sorry for and turn away from that sin and turn toward God. And that's the most important part. We turn away from the sin and to God. 
is repentance. And the old prophets were always preaching repent. David talked about repentance. His repentance is often in the, in the Psalms, but it wasn't the general idea. The idea was I'm going to keep the law as best I can. I will say my prayers. I'll make my offerings. But repentance wasn't a huge deal. And for some churches, repentance to this day is not a big deal. Now, I say churches, you know, they, they would claim that they're a Christian. I'm not so sure that they are Christian if they're not going to emphasize repentance. Because if you're not emphasizing repentance, you're also not emphasizing sin. Because you don't have anything to repent from if you don't teach sin. So we need to teach people that there is sin and that the result of sin is a need for forgiveness and repentance. And this is the message of John the Baptist. Repent. Turn away from your sins and follow after, turn toward God. And he is, and then, then Matthew just goes in here and he says, For this is what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make, make his path straight. And that's Isaiah 40, verse 3, and we'll just look at Isaiah 43 real quick. Huh? Isaiah 43? 40, verse 3. And it says, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert the highway before our God. For every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight in the rough places for him. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So that's actually through verse 5. And Isaiah was talking about John the Baptist in this case and announcing Jesus and what Jesus would be doing. So here, here's that voice, John the Baptist, raised up to be the voice crying in the wilderness. And then it, then it says, verse 4, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle, about his loins, and his meat or his food was locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist obviously did not have the most congenial appearance and draw to people. Camel's hair is not the, the uh, clothing of the uh, rich and, and luxurious. It's very harsh. We would almost kind of think of him in, in our terms as Americans, a mountain man. Coming in with that Probably we would picture the big bushy beard, furs on his back, somebody you wouldn't just run up to and say, hey, how are you? This is not the, this is not the picture that John the Baptist brings. He's wearing the camel car hair. His, he's got leather around, around his loins. And then his wonderful diet, locusts and wild honey. Now, I have not tried locusts in my lifetime. I've tried other really strange things, but not locusts. Uh, but we look at this, and he, his diet was locusts and wild honey. We have this opinion, and I think he's putting this picture of John the Baptist to tell you that when they're going out to see John the Baptist, they're not going out to go see somebody who's the flashy dresser with the eloquent words. They're going out to hear a message from God. And this is what is here. He's not going out to the mega church with the pastor in the $3,000 suit with all the right words. And <laughs> they're going out to see somebody that has the word of God 
and tells it to them straight. And this, we're going to see that's how John the Baptist is. He does not mince words with, with people. Verse 5 says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan and were baptized of him into the Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruit met for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We, are Abraham, we have Abraham our, for our, to our father. For I say unto you that God is able to, with, of these stones to raise up children to, unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Wherefore, every tree which brings forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his, his floor and gather his wheat into, his, into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here is the message, a copy of the message that John preached. So he, first he is... He is at the Jordan River in the Judean area, which means in the southern part of the Jordan River, outside of Jerusalem. And it says that the people came out of Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan. He has crowds coming to him. And this is not going to make the scribes and the Pharisees and all the other leaders very happy. Leaders are never happy when, when crowds gather toward some other person because they normally worry about losing their influence, losing their power. And the scribes and the, 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 scribes and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the religious power right now. All right? they, make up, they make up the ruling individuals. The priests are very low down on this level. Many of the priests are Pharisees and, and Sadducees. The Pharisees are ones that re believe in the law. They believe in the resurrection. They believe the Bible pre pretty accurately. Uh, they put all their hope in, in the scripture. They believe in the hereafter. They, 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 we would consider them in our day kind of the conservatives of the government. They're the ones that are going to believe what the Bible says. They believe in heaven. They believe in hell. They believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees are just very worldly. They do not believe in the spiritual. They don't believe in the hereafter. They don't believe in the resurrection. And the way you can keep them track, and this is an old, old statement, the, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so therefore they, they were sad, you see. <laughs> so if you want to be able to remember how they, which one doesn't believe in the resurrections, it's the Sadducees. Uh, and that's an old thing. I did not make that up. It's been around forever. It's a little thing that seminary students have said for years to be able to remember the differences between the religious leaders and the secular leaders. And that's pretty much what they were. And they were very much, the Sadducees tended to side with Rome a little bit because they were just practical. This is what we have going on. We're going to, the power is Rome. We're going to uh, uh, feel, you know, try to be joining up to them and making them, you know, like us. The Pharisees were more to say God is our, God is our king and, and move forward. 
That does not mean that most of the Pharisees were actually good, godly men. They, they mostly had kept the law, and they believed their perfection was in the law. Many Pharisees, though, do become followers of Christ. Uh, we see that in... Uh, <coughs> yes. Name jumped right out of my head. Man that came to Jesus in the middle of the night. Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he came to Jesus in, at night. Uh, many of the many of the ones that were on his side on the Sanhedrin were Pharisees, because they believed in the in God and the Word. They saw Jesus for who he was easier than the Sadducees, who did not put any stock in the Word of God. So we see him him drawing a crowd. And he was baptizing people in the Jordan, and they were confessing their sins. Confession and repentance is something that is not the norm for the average Jew. Even today, it's not the norm for the average Jew to do this. They put all their hope in for those who believe in heaven and hell, which not all Jews even believe in heaven and hell. But those who do believe in heaven and hell put all their hope in following the law and being as good as they can and doing more good than bad because they don't have a temple to make sacrifices in. So when the temple was destroyed, the, the rabbis got together and said, okay, how can our sins be forgiven? And they decided until they could build another temple that do more good than bad, which is the religious system of this world. Outside of Christianity, every religion is based upon the idea of do more, bad, uh, <laughs> do more good <laughs> than bad and please the deity. So, and this is the way Satan has lied to people. And here John is saying, repent, turn back to God, confess your sins and repent. And he's baptizing people. Now, baptism is not something that belongs just to the Christian world. Matter of fact, most religions have some form of baptism involved in it. The Jews all baptized everybody who proselytized into Judaism was baptized. And even before Jesus died, baptism had the picture of dying to your old beliefs and raising again to new beliefs, which is why they baptized their proselytes. And I've heard pastors say, this is, no, this was all Christian, but no, it's been, for millennia, the Jews have baptized proselytes. Does everybody know what a proselyte is? That's a person who changes religions. <laughs> okay. Uh, so anybody, uh, many, many of the Muslim worlds have anti-proselytizing laws. You cannot talk to somebody and try to get them to change religion. And it usually applies to all religions except for the Muslim religion. Uh, but there are other countries that have done that, that you can't proselytize. Uh, some Christians will believe that changing denominations is proselyting, uh, but it's still just Christianity. So he is baptizing people, and this is something that is not done in a normal, everyday practice to other Jews. Now, it is also true, though, that Jews didn't, this is not totally uncommon, because the Jewish rabbis would baptize people in their name and say that you're going to follow our teaching. So I'm going to make up a rabbi for you. Rabbi, rabbi Ben Abraham says, you know, you're going to follow me, we're going to baptize you, and they dunk you down and, you know, and, and raise you up in, their, in the name of Rabbi Ben Abraham. 
and you're agreeing to die to other teachings and live according to his teachings. And that's what that has symbolized forever. So when we're baptized in the name of Jesus, we're dying to all of our old way of thinking, our old, old, old doctrines, and we're raised up in a new life to obey the teachings of Jesus. And yes, it is also the idea of I'm outward expression of an, of an inward change and all of that, and, and that is really is what it's always been. I'm dying to an old way of thinking and living to a new way of thinking. And all through, the, especially the book of Acts, you're going to hear them say, whose baptism were you baptized unto? And we see that over and over. And usually when they ask that question, the person whose baptism they had been baptized unto is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's message, repent, uh, confess and repent. That was his message. Confess your sins and repent because you need to be forgiven of your sins. That was his whole message. That's what we read in both Matthew and Luke. Every place we read about him, that was his message to people. And again, it was not an unheard of Jewish message, but it also wasn't the normal <laughs> Jewish message. And I bring this up because we want to be careful what we listen to and make sure that what we listen to when we're being taught is biblical. And this is why I tell everybody I want Bereans in this church. I want people who get into the scripture and check things out that you hear. Make sure that it is valid because it is so easy to get wandering down a wrong path and hear only part of a, of a message, hear only part of the truth, which is why I want people reading their Bible every year. I want people to get the whole scripture, whole message of scripture in. My goal is to preach through the whole Bible, verse by verse, every single verse, every single chapter, every single book, and get through the whole book. And if I'm still around and it takes, you know, in the six years later from now when I finally get through the whole book, maybe, then we'll start all over again. Because I think it's important that we get the whole counsel of God. Not just, not just my favorite parts, you know, preach over and over on my favorite parts, there, there are some pastors that they teach the same things over and over. Every few years, you, they start back at the beginning of what they like. And there's so much that they leave out. Now, if I, had my, if I did that, I'd be teaching Genesis almost all the time, and I'd be teaching a few other books. But, but I want to teach everything there is for us to know because we need the full information from God. And every time I read through the Bible, I see stuff that I've never noticed before. God starts tying things together that I've never noticed before. And I already know that the people who are reading their Bible through every year, they're telling me the same thing, that, that they're seeing things that they've never seen before. God, they've, they've read books that they haven't read before. Uh, and, you know, it's sad to me how many Christians have never read some of the other books of the Bible. Books like Zephaniah, Zechariah, uh, Hosea, Nahum, Obadiah. The big Obadiah takes forever to read. I think it's 17 verses. <laughs> you know, and we sit there, and so many of these very powerful books have never even been looked at by many Christians. And it is wonderful when you get into them to see what the truth of God and how much it talks about the Messiah and talks about God coming and all of these things. It's, and the challenge I have for everybody is get into God's word. Study it. Get to read these books that most, most people have never even, sometimes never even heard of, much less read. But I want to encourage us all, read the scriptures. 
study the scriptures. Talk about them. Get to know them well enough to talk about it with other people because it's a great thing to have that happen. Verse 7 says, And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from, from the wrath to come? This is a gentle language that he has. He looks up and I do not believe that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to be baptized. They were kind of on the fringes looking to see, you know, is there something we can charge him with? Because that's what they did to Jesus. They were always around Jesus looking for something that he was going to say that they could accuse him of misleading people or trying to bring people away from Rome. So I think this is what they're doing with John the Baptist. This, they see him as a potential political enemy. And you know, this is even happening in our day. They look at the church as a political enemy in many cases because we teach God's word. And they, there's so much influence that pastors have that they always, that the, especially certain politicians always think that the church is against them. The church is going to draw the power away from them. For those who are trying to drag us into more and more evil item areas, then they're probably right. The church is their enemy. But not on purpose, but because we're speaking God's word, his truth. And we have so many people in this world today who are trying to believe that there's no absolute truth. And this is a problem that we have out there. And if you start witnessing to people, you're going to hear things like, well, that's your truth, it's not mine. Well, I'm sorry, truth is truth. It doesn't matter whether you believe the truth or not, truth is truth. You can believe with all your heart and totally believe that there is no such thing as gravity. But if you go step off the cliff, you're going to very quickly find out it doesn't matter what you believe about gravity. Gravity is going to say it is true and you're going to fall. It doesn't matter. How, you, know, you can't go out and say, well, I don't believe there's any, there's any such thing as gravity. I just don't believe it's true and go walk, off the, you know, walk around in the sky. It's not going to happen. Truth is truth. And we need to be able to start understanding that when somebody says, well, that's just your, your truth, number one, they don't believe it. They don't believe it to begin with, and I've proved that to many people over the years, that they don't believe that, that truth is, is, is relative. But here, John is looking at these people that are trying to come in and say, how can we get him? He's drawing too many people to him. Bring this up for science. You know, science has always been coming and going losing information and regaining information. Part of Sunday's message is about how the Bronze Age happened a millennia before it happened, rehappened after the flood. So we'll talk about that this weekend, this Sunday. Nothing new under the sun. And then he says, O generation of vipers, you know, which is you offspring of vipers, you evil malignant people, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He has been preaching that wrath is coming. Anytime that we see the word repent in the Old Testament especially, it usually is attached to judgment is coming. Jonah's message to Nineveh was repent for 40 days you're going to be destroyed. And I don't think that he was trying to be kind about it because Nineveh was the enemy of, of Israel at that time and he was, the whole reason he didn't want to go is he didn't want them to repent. <laughs> and we see this over and over when the, when the message of repentance comes it's because judgment is at hand. And John's message is repent. Repent for the judgment is coming. And he's looking up at these people who are just watching him and said, who's told you? 
Who's told you to repent and, and flee? Because he, he knew the way they were. He knew that they were not there for the right reasons. And he says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits met for repentance. And this is something that we've talked about. When Christians get saved, there should be a change in their life. If, they've truly, if you truly repent, it should generate activity that is godly. If, you're, if there is no works being generated, then people have the right to say, have you truly changed? Have you repented? Are you a Christian? And this is something I have said to people. When you get saved, there should be some, at least one thing in your life that has changed. Did you, do you start loving people? Do you fall in love with them? Have you fallen in love with God's word? Have you had some sin that, that just was taken out of your life? When I got saved and I've shared with people, God took a very hard, bitter temper out of my life. And it was instant. That doesn't mean I haven't lost my temper at all since then, but the temper that I had was very bad even as a young child. He's preaching repentance. What, and people are coming to him to confess and repent. I think he's making fun of them myself. He's jabbing them. Who told you to come out here and, and confess your sins and repent? But where did they get the word flee? Because they left Jerusalem. In the, in the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Messiah usually are... You're going to flee Jerusalem and head out to where the Messiah is at. The wrath is going to fall in on Israel. In the end times, even today, the seven years of tribulation is all Antichrist attacking Israel, basically. God is going to send his wrath and his, his judgments, but the Antichrist is going to move against Israel. And on the last three and a half especially, they will flee from Jerusalem. Things are getting so bad and hide into the, in the wilderness. So he's basically saying, because he's preaching Jesus is coming, he, he's making fun of them. Who, who told you guys to come out here? You, you don't believe in all of this stuff, and yet you're here where the repentance is happening. So he's jabbing at them. You know, he's not being nice to him. He's jabbing at them. And then he goes, he anticipates their argument. He says, and, you think, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham for, to our father. This should sound familiar for when, when they're talking to Jesus. And they go, we are the children of Abraham. We know, or we know who our father is. We're children of Abraham. And you don't know who your father is because he was, had the reputation of being a bastard child because he was born out of wedlock. So they made this jab at Jesus later on. And then he made, if you remember, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That was a straightforward claim that he was God. Before Abraham was, which was already 4,000 years, uh, 3,000 years earlier, before Abraham was, I am. The statement that God said to Moses, who shall I say send you? I am that I am. I'm the existing one. And then, then they turned around and said, you're not even 30 years old, old and you claim to have known Abraham. And that's when he said before the result was, they picked up stones <laughs> to stone him. Why? Because they knew that he had claimed to be God. When people tell you that Jesus never made the claim to be God, there are several places in the, in the scriptures where he makes statements. And when you see after he makes a statement that they went to pick up stones, look a little closer at it because that means he just claimed to be God and they're, they're going to stone him for blasphemy. 
okay? And there's several places where this happens. So when you see that happening in there, be aware that that's a place where he's claimed God to be God and look a little closer at how he did it. So I just challenge you with that because when you meet some of these people that say, well, the Bible never says that he claimed to be God, there's lots of places where, where, he, where that happens. And, he says, and, and so John the Baptist is saying, I don't care if you are descendants of Abraham, that doesn't mean anything. And this is something we have to get hold of. There are people who teach that every single Jew is going to heaven because they're God's children and chosen people. That is not true. They have to make choices just like every other person that's going to be before God. They had to make a choice to follow. Just being circumcised by your parents at eight days old <laughs> did not mean you were going to go to heaven. Just as the churches that that baptize children and not just the Catholics, but many, there are several Protestant churches that, you know, sprinkle the, sprinkle the babies and somehow that is supposed to mean that they're, you know, God's chosen child because their parents decided to do so. There's, there's not make you a follower of God for that to happen. It must be a choice. And this is why over the, over time, Moses is saying, you've got to follow God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It wasn't just, well, I'm a, I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. I'm going to go to heaven. No, it didn't happen that way. And it's, I've heard this even with, with people I witnessed to. Well, you say you're a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Well, my grandpa was a pastor. Well, I'm glad your grandpa was a pastor, but how does that help you? Well, my dad uh, drugged me to church every day. Well, that's, that's fine. You were drugged to church, but how does that? Did you make a decision for Jesus? And it is very important. God does not have any grandchildren. He has no great-grandchildren. He has children. And this has been true all through the scriptures. Jacob was not a believer in God until he came to the place where he saw the stairway to heaven and saw the angels ascending and going down. And then he made an agreement to God that I don't know that was his real place because he said, God, if you do these things, I will, if you do these, I will be your follower. And then on his way back in, he wrestled with the angel. And I believe that's really where he became a follower of God. He actually wrestled with Jesus. But he had to make a decision. Moses had to make a decision. He's on the backside of the desert, standing in front of the burning bush, telling God he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And finally, God says, you're going to, I, you know, you're going to do this or you're just going to be in pure disobedience. And we see the calling and people having to make a decision to follow God. There must be a decision to follow him. If not, we're deceiving ourselves. We're trying to put our faith in something other than a personal decision. David made a personal decision to follow God. You know, we look at Samuel. Samuel got called at a very young age when God called us, and he actually heard God's voice, and he finally said, I hear and speak. And then from that point on, he had a relationship with God. We see this need of a relationship, and here is John the Baptist tearing the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, don't care. We don't care who you know. God doesn't care who your parents are, because he can he could make these rocks into descendants of Abraham. 
You know, this is quite a bit of faith in his case. You know, and, but, you know, it is true that God could do that. God started the world with nothing. He could take a rock and make it into a person. And that's what he's saying. God is powerful enough. He doesn't, you don't need to be believing in that. This, you need to make a decision. And he says, it goes on, it says, Now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which brings forth good fruit does not bring forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. If you want to destroy a tree, chop up its roots. <laughs> pretty, pretty easy. You, number one, you take its nutrients away. And if nothing else, you weaken it for the next storm to knock, knock down because the root system is what keeps the tree standing firm. Uh, one of the things about the great sequoia redwoods, uh, uh, the redwood forest, is that the root system is a phenomenally small for a tree the size that it is. And the only reason that they stay standing in the way they do is that their roots all intertwine amongst them and make themselves a stronger root system. Uh, if they get off by themselves, they will be knocked down on the first storm by the, at any time because of the lack of roots. And John is saying, I, he's giving them warning. I know you're here for the wrong reasons, but the ax is ready for the roots. You're going to you're going to be cut down. You're going to be chopped down. And because you don't have good works, you're going to be cast into the fire or hell. And this is what we look into each time we see this statement. Cut down and thrown into the fire to be cast into hell. And he goes, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John says, I'm baptizing you with water unto repentance. Water quite often refers to the scriptures and the truth of the word. So he's bringing in this, here's what the word says. And I believe he was quoting, you know, during his sermons, even though they didn't talk about it, I'm sure he was quoting scriptures because he has to go to the, the authority. Jesus is going to quote scriptures all the time. And he says, I'm baptizing you with water unto repentance. But one comes after me whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. If you remember on the Passover night, the last Passover, Jesus took and, and took off his uh, outer garment, knelt down and washed the disciples' feet. And this is basically what John is talking about. The, when you came into somebody's house in those days, you took off your sandals and your feet were washed because your feet were dirty. And the person who got that job was the, the lowest level servant in the whole place. This, they would find the servant who couldn't walk straight <laughs> without tripping and falling, and they would give that servant the job of washing the people's feet when they, walked, when they came in the house. And he was responsible to know where their sandals were so that when they left, they would bear their sandals back to them. So John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do the lowest, most menial job compared to the one that's following me. Jesus washed the, the feet of the disciples and he said, if I, the master, have done this, do it unto one another. Now there are churches that get into taking that and saying, well, you know, Jesus washed the feet so we should all be washing each other's feet. And I understand if they took that the right way. But what ends up happening is Jesus did the most menial tasks 
are we willing to do the most menial tasks for one another? And that could be anywhere from cleaning up after somebody who's made a huge mess to doing the most menial thing. And a lot of times I see these people who really want to believe in foot washing. And I'm not opposed to it necessarily. But you won't see them cleaning the toilets in the church. Or going to somebody's house and cleaning up, for the, you know, cleaning up the most menial task in their, in their house. But they'd be more than willing to wash your feet. Okay, washing your feet in our day and age doesn't really mean anything to us. But if you saw somebody doing the, the least job, not looking for any recognition, that is what Jesus' example was all about. Not just going out and washing their feet, because we've lost that connection to how menial it was. When, when John is saying this, I don't even, I'm not even worthy. You know, he's drawing crowds, and he's saying, I'm not worthy to even bear his sandals wash his feet. Jesus washing the feet of the disciples saying you've got to be ready to serve others in the most minute way that nobody's going to recognize. As a matter of fact most people look at it and say well why would you be doing that? We need to be willing to do the lowest most menial service for one another if we're truly going to be doing what, what Jesus showed by washing the disciples feet. And like I said we've lost that connection to the menialness of it. And anybody who thinks a job is too little for them has got too high an opinion of himself. And then it says, whose fan, and this is a winnowing shovel, it has the, the holes in it when they take the weed off, is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and take his wheat into the garner and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And this is the idea, the garner is the storehouse. And if you've done, if you were familiar with the wheat in this day, they would take and they put all the wheat in the threshing floor and they'd take these big forks, fork-like things, and they'd keep throwing it up in the air and, and the wind would come by and blow the, blow the chaff away and they, eventually all you would have is the kernels of wheat left after long enough of doing this. And it says that Jesus is going to come along and he's going to thresh his wheat, basically. And I think about his wheat being the idea of in John, uh, excuse me, Matthew 13, he's going to talk about the wheat and the tares. The Christians are normally pictured as the wheat. And Jesus is going to harvest his wheat. And that particular parable in, John, in Matthew 13 was the owner planted wheat and the, the servants came out and said well you planted good seed where, where are these tares and tares were a weed that looked like wheat and they go shall we tear it you know shall we go tear them and he goes don't tear it out because you might destroy the wheat along with it wait till it grows up completely and tares and wheat look very similar until they get to the very end where you get the fruit or lack of fruit in the case of the tares and that lesson was basically Jesus saying, there's going to be people who look like Christians, act like Christians, but aren't Christians. And we need to be aware of that. And this is one of the th reasons that we witness to people, we share the gospel. Because there are going to be many in the last day that God is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And this is why, and I've said this over and over, one of the old, old jokes is, there's two things that are going to surprise us when we get to heaven. Those who are there and those who aren't there. Because there's going to be some people who are going to go, well, where are they? They were a really good Christian. They came to church every Sunday, and they didn't know God. 
Then there's going to be people we would swear were just so bad that there's no way they could have been in heaven, but because it's by grace. By grace. For by grace are you saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven because we're going to be, look at some people and say, wow, they, they looked so good. They looked so good. They had real, real disciplined flesh. And they're not there. And there's going to be others that aren't there. But he says he's going to gather his wheat into the storehouse. And he's going to burn the rest. And that'll be the end days when we go and stand before him and the wheat, the, the chaff and the un, ungodly will be sent into hell. And an unquenchable fire forever. And this is something we've got to get hold of as Christians is hell is an eternal punishment. If we truly grab hold of that, we will be motivated to share more gospel with people, especially relatives and friends, because it's eternal. It is not something that is short-lived. And a lot of people will say, well, how can, how can a loving God do that? Well, because he created us as eternal future beings. We don't have eternity in the, in the past, but from the moment we are born, we have an eternity. We will live forever, either in heaven, which is true life, or in hell, which is true death. And we need to understand, everybody we know is going to spend eternity somewhere. Our job as Christians is to share the gospel message. Let them know that they have a choice to face. What's the worst they're going to do? Get mad at you and not want to be your friend? Well, imagine how angry they will be if, if they end up in hell and you never told them that that's what they were facing. I'd rather have them get mad at me down here and having told them the truth than to have them mad at me as they're headed into hell. And this is critical for us to understand. And we'll probably be upset with ourselves. It's a good thing that God is going to wipe every tear out of our eyes when we get ready to go into the new heaven and new earth, because can you imagine what it would be like, knowing especially if you didn't share with somebody? Verse 13. Then comes Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and you come unto me. And Jesus answered him and said, Suffer it to be so, for thus it becomes to us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went straight up out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like, the, like a dove, and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus comes to John. John, remember, has said, I'm not even worthy of carrying his shoes. <laughs> and Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And Jesus is coming all the way from Galilee. Now, how far up the Jordan John the Baptist was, we don't know, but he is drawing the crowd from Jerusalem. All right, Galilee is all the way to the north side of the Jordan River, where the Jordan River comes out of the Sea of Galilee. So this is a pretty fair piece that Jesus is walking to come to John. And again, we see that he's coming from Galilee to the Jordan and unto John to be baptized. And just, I didn't bring it out earlier, but baptized, and if you don't know about it, is literally to be submerged and 
brought back out again. All right? And so when people sprinkle and all these other things, they're not following what the scriptures very clearly <laughs> talk about. And remember, we talked about in, in many time, in a time while back ago that God submerges us in the Holy Spirit. When he baptizes us into the Holy Spirit, we get to stay there. We don't come back out of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit endues us with his life. And we, we talked about the idea of, of the pickle. The, the vegetables get put into the vinegar. And the vegetable does nothing to become a pickle except stay in the vinegar. And that's where we put it in, in the vinegar. And the longer it stays in the vinegar, the more pickled it becomes until the point where it can literally change its texture and, and complete flavor and become changed. And that's how we are when we're, we're baptized in the, by the Holy Spirit. We're submerged into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just keeps in imbuing us and coming into us and, and, and being drawn into us. And we eventually get changed completely from who we were to a whole new being because the Holy Spirit does the work. And I just, I keep hammering on this because I want us to understand the Holy Spirit is the one that changes us. All we have to do is surrender. Be crucified and surrender to that and he'll change us. And we'll find ourselves slowly being changed by this baptism. And John says, uh, tried to make things difficult for him. He says, you know, no, not, you know, he tried to hinder him. I'm not the one to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. I can't baptize you. And John recognized him. And then he even asks him, come you to me? <laughs> Are you really coming to me? This is the humility that John the Baptist has. He's, he's giving a, a big following going out, and yet he knows his job is to point to the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. His job is simply to say, there he is. That's the one you're supposed to follow. He's the one I've been talking about. And Jesus said, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all, right, all righteousness. So it goes, let it happen at this moment. We're going to do it at this moment, is what it really means. For in this manner, it becomes us to fulfill or make complete all righteousness. Jesus came to this world to be obedient to the entire law. All 613 laws he obeyed perfectly, never sinning. And this is something we must get in our mind. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God without sin. He was tempted. He was tested. He was tried. He was the God-man. He was 100% God and 100% man. God's math doesn't make much sense. We would say he'd be 50-50, but God says no. He was completely God and completely man, which meant that he could be tempted. Because if you took out the man part, then he was just God and you couldn't tempt him. But he needed the God part to be able to live the perfect life. But he says, we're going to complete this. I need to show forth that I am the one that's coming out to meet you. And I need to be baptized so that the, the, the show the people what is expected. And being obedient to Jesus is why we do get baptized. Because he took the time to be baptized into righteousness. In his case, he says unto righteousness, that repentance and confession of sin and repentance that John the Baptist kept talking about. Jesus had no sin to confess, no sin to, to repent of, 
but he says, I'm going to be the example of what we expect from people, to come into repentance. And repentance is not a word that a lot of churches use these days. It has fallen out of, out of style, but it is very important that we learn to confess our sins and repent. And confession is a word that means to say the same thing as. And this is, sometimes people think they've confessed when, well, God, I, I really messed up. Well, that's not really repentance or confession. Because you're not saying, God, you say it's a sin, I agree with you that it's a sin. All right, this is very important when we're looking at how we're going to confess. God, you know, I really made a mistake and I, and I sinned. I did this thing that's wrong in your sight. I ask you to forgive me and, I, and I'm turning back to you. Confession for a Christian is not something that is heaven or hell. It is relationship with him. When we accept Jesus Christ, we are saved and going to heaven. As long as it's a real decision where you truly believe with all your heart and put all your faith in that decision, you're going to heaven. But as every one of us knows, when you sin and you do not confess that sin, it puts a barrier between you and God. And it's not really God's barrier. It's our barrier because we don't want to draw close to a holy God because we know we don't deserve it. And this is how I've seen over the years. Somebody gets into some sin they refuse to confess, they refuse to repent, and the next thing you know, they're not reading their Bible, they're not coming to church, they're probably not praying. You, know, you can't prove that they're not praying, but if they're not doing any of the other stuff, they're not praying. Why? Because the last thing you want to do when you're feeling guilty is approach the holy, righteous God. And you don't want to be around his people because they make you convicted because you feel bad compared to them which really shouldn't be a case because we're all, we're all terrible sinners even though we are saints and forgiven. But when you're around God's people, you feel his presence and you don't want to feel God's presence when you're feeling guilty. This is why confession is made. God, I have, I have violated your laws. I agree with you that it is sin. Forgive me. And then bring yourself back into relationship with the righteous, holy God of the universe and then you feel good being in his word. You feel good praying. You feel good being with his people. But if you don't do that confession and repentance, you will not feel good and you will draw away from his people. And it just will happen. And I tell you, it will. I've watched it for over 40 years, 44 years. And then you keep sinning because you feel I'm guilty anyway and I'm not having the right influence and you get worse. And then you become reprobate, which means to be really bad. You're, everything you're doing is bad. Because you feel so bad. And this is why I say some of the people that are truly Christians have gone into reprobate status because of their walking away from God and refusing to confess their sin and, and bringing their relationship back in. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Confession restores the relationship with God. And... He's already forgiven us. The sad thing is he's already forgiven us. We just need to get on our mind that we're forgiven. So, but that does not mean we just go out and sin and do whatever we want because we're going to be forgiven. That is not understanding grace or, or the, the, the price paid for our salvation. But if we do sin, he's forgiven us. It's under the blood of Christ if, we're, if, if we are a Christian. So we 
are a Christian, we say, God, I am sorry. I've, I've, I made a mistake. I've done what, you've, what you said not to. Forgive me. And he wraps his arms around you and says, come on in. <laughs> come on in. Come on back. Just like the prodigal son's father. Oh, you're coming back. Thank you. <laughs> you're still my son. You're still my daughter. You're still my child. Come on back. No, you're not going to be a servant. You're not coming back on a probational, probational standing. You're coming back as my child. And God does that for us. If we are his child, we come back as his child. He doesn't put us on probation. He doesn't st start putting us at the bottom of the ladder. He says, you're back. I'm happy to see you. The prodigal son had wasted his entire inheritance, but he was still the son. Still going to be taken care of as a family member. He didn't have an inheritance left. He'd already spent that, but he was a child and not having to come back from the beginning. And after John baptized him, when Jesus came out of the water, John saw the Spirit descend upon him as the dove. And lo, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now we don't know if all the people heard this or just John. John was the prophet. He's the leader. In, in uh, the other Gospels it tells us that John was told that when he saw these things that would be the Messiah. So it could be just John seeing and hearing these things. It could be everybody. I don't know which is true. I've read, I read all the different versions of this and none of them really make it clear whether everybody saw it or just John. Because each one of them says, he saw. So I believe it was John. John was the leader. John was told what to look for. And John sees this. And he's the one that's bearing testimony of this event. But can you imagine? This is one of our verses where we see the Trinity being displayed. The Holy Spirit coming down from heaven and descending upon Jesus. And the voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is one of the Trinity verses. And we talk about the Trinity, the Trinity, and if anybody tells you, well, the Trinity isn't, isn't in the Bible, well, the word Trinity isn't, but every picture of the Trinity is in the Scripture. And how they can be three in one and, and one in three, we don't, we don't know. It's not three separate entities. It's not essences. It's not power. It is three distinct individuals that are also one individual. It's a concept that man cannot even begin to understand. And I have studied it for a long time and do not understand it. I can tell you, I can tell you the verses teach it. <laughs> we can go through all the verses, and we did here a few, few months back, go through the verses on the Trinity. We'll never fully understand it. It just is something we know God says. And you know what? I am glad there's things that we cannot understand in the Scripture because that tells us that it's a God thing. Because if we could truly, fully understand every aspect about God, he'd be too small and he couldn't be God. If I could understand everything there was about God, then I'd be God because I would understand everything. And the one thing I know for sure is I'm not God. <laughs> and I don't know anybody who is God other than God. And we always want to be aware that there are going to be things out there that, about God that we do not understand. We don't understand why he created man knowing that it was going to cost him his own life to be able to redeem man. We don't understand much of many things about God and that is a good 
thing. The, the, the unsaved world will try to teach, try to convince you that's a bad thing. It's bad that you don't understand everything about God. It's the best thing in the world that I don't understand everything about God because if he was that small, he wouldn't be big enough to be God. I hope that makes sense. You know, if he was that small, if I can understand everything about him, he's just man-made. He'd be the Romans and Greeks gods that just were men with lots of power. And you read about their gods, and that's really what they were. Men and women with lots of power with all the, the downfalls of man. Just with lots of power. And our God is so far beyond anything we can comprehend. And I've said this over and over again. How big do you think God is? No matter what picture you have in your head, you're thinking too small. How powerful is God? No matter how powerful you picture him being, he's much more powerful than you than you than you're imagining. He is bigger than anything that we can imagine. He is stronger than anything we can imagine. All of his attributes, he is much more than we can imagine. And I can tell you over the years, I've started imagining a bigger and bigger God, and he's still too small. I'm still thinking too small. And I think bigger than most people do about God. So we want to encourage you on that. He's always bigger. He's always stronger. And that is a good thing that we don't understand everything about God. Because it just proves that he's God. Because if I can understand him, then he's not big enough to be God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to look at how big you are and your desire to, to be baptized, to show us an example. And just the ministry of John, how humble a man he was, that he was ready to pave the way for you and turn over his disciples to you in, in the process. Lord, help us to go out and witness and, and share with people. Help us to, to share the gospel. And Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, we ask that they will admit that they're a sinner, confess their sin, turn to you, and know that you are the only way into heaven. And we thank you in your son's name. Amen.